This is an ABC podcast. Irving Finkel is a curator at the British Museum. He's the assistant keeper of artefacts from ancient Mesopotamia. This is stuff made by the Sumerians, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. These are among the very first civilizations to emerge on the planet. These are people who built cities that are mentioned in the Bible, like Ur and Babylon. And they had the first form of writing that we know of, a script known as cuneiform. And Irving is one of the few people in the world who can read cuneiform right off the page, or the tablet, as it were. And he discovered that one of the things they were writing about all the time was the ghosts that were in their lives. Sometimes these ghosts were the spectres of people they'd known when they were alive, and sometimes they were unrecognisable. Sometimes they spoke, sometimes they were silent. But for these ancient people, the presence of a ghost in the house was shocking, but not particularly remarkable. They were considered to be just part of the furniture of reality. Irving has written a book about all this called The First Ghosts. And I recorded this conversation with him down in the basement of the British Museum in London, where they store some of these tablets and statues. Irving Finkel, how lovely to see you again in the bowels of the British Museum. Welcome to you, sir. Richard, the bowels are proud for the first time in their life. <laughs> hello, hello. Hello. Have you ever seen a ghost? No, I haven't. And it's a matter of chagrin to me that I've never seen a ghost. And I can't understand it because I'm not frightened, I'm just sympathetic and interested. And I can tell you there are places in the British Museum where people have seen ghosts. And I've hung about there after dark, quietly, hoping one would come out and zilch. So I've come to the conclusion, which may or may not be justifiable, that there are people who can see ghosts and people who never will. And I think I'm in the second category. And it might be like being tone deaf and you can't hear Mozart. I don't know what it is. It's jolly annoying to me. And all I can say is, having written this book, which is very much on their side, I was expecting by now that in the middle of the night there'd be a kind of scratching at the window or something. Zilch. I mean, it's very, very disappointing. <laughs> or something drawn in the sand or something like anything, that. Anything, anything. I'm very humble in my needs, you know. Do you know, have good friends, though, who've seen ghosts? And well, they yes. Told you? Actually, this had a big effect on me, because when I was at school, my best friend was called Peter. And um, he came from the same sort of family as me. We were very, very good friends. And it turned out that when he was a boy, quite a young boy, he had an experience which passed down in the family as seeing a ghost. And he didn't tell me about it at the time, but when we were at university, we used to meet at Christmas and go for walks, and he told me about this escapade, such as it was. He was in bed in his room. You know, it must have been in the early hours of the morning, one o'clock or something like that, and he woke up, and his bed was against the wall, and between him and the door there was a chair, and there was a lady sitting in the chair in a straight, straight back, he said, with a sort of black dress like that, looking at him, and he sat up in bed and looked at her, and she said to him, "'Go away!' As he impersonated it, something like that. His own bedroom, you know, and all that. So he went back to sleep, being a sensible boy. And in the following morning, he um, 
asked his mum who it was who'd come up to say hello in the middle of the night. She said nobody did, nobody did. So one thing led to another, and the next couple of days went by, and then his mum was in the garden hanging out the washing, and the next-door neighbour was there, and she said, you know, it's a funny thing Peter said, in the night this old lady in an old formal dress was in his room and spoke to him, and the, the, the lady said, what does she look like? So Peter's mother repeated what Peter had told her as much as she could remember of it and what he told me and the old lady said well I mean the lady next door said well that must be the old lady who lived in your house because she died in that room and this made such an impression on me because the crucial thing is that when this happened, I mean, I was born in 1951, so, you know, it's before electricity and running water and all that kind of thing. So none of us kids have been brought up on Hollywood and woo-woo and ghosts and Disney, nothing like that. We didn't have any idea of haunting me. We weren't influenced by external. So it was a kind of naive, completely unmanipulative vision and I don't really see how you could possibly destroy it so that's what started me off with a kind of sympathy with the idea it seems being here in the, the British Museum that if there were to be a place that were haunted it would be here do the curators ever tell stories or workers in the British Museum tell stories of, of odd goings on here? They jolly well do because this is an old building from the 18th century and it's full of stiffs and stiffs are associated with ghosts are they not so you have all the remnants of the dead persons um, whose bodies and bits and pieces might be in the building, and, of course, members of staff who might have died off when nobody noticed. So there's quite a <laughs> source material for this sort of thing. And the warders, especially, the warders are like this. They're often ex-army or ex-police. They're not the people to trifle with. And there was a guy who came to write a book about ghosts in the museum because there are lots of narratives about things being seen after dark and doors becoming unlocked and doors banging and this and this and this. There's a whole load of stuff. Anyway, these warders said things like, they tell you, things lad I could tell you but I'm not going to say not a thing you know like that so if you knew what I'd seen your blood would curdle but there are letters even um, from the 19th century of people seeing ghosts and there's one smashing case of a thing in the King's Library which is that elegant room now which of course is a shop but more than one person has seen figures going along with just their head and shoulders and um this is what all people there were. There can't be anything. They must have had too much for lunch or something stupid like that. But the fact is that the original floor underneath the present building was at a level where if people were walking along it, you would only see their heads and shoulders, things like that. And, of course, since I wrote this book, a lot of people have written to oh me knowing <laughs> that I'm not going to laugh at them. So, I mean, a whole new volume could come. Not me, I tell you. You write in your book that... Reports of ghosts are so widespread through time and space in human history. As soon as we start to write, people have been writing reports of ghosts right from the get-go. And these stories are so cross-cultural and they go back so far through time, there's got to be something to them. I suspect, I don't know, my best theory is there's some kind of psychic projection that comes out of us. I don't really know. But how have you decided to approach these reports as a, as a man of science which and culture, which you are? Well, I try to be a man of science, and, of course, I deal with stuff which is grown up and serious. But when it comes to um, trying to understand ancient Mesopotamian life from their writings, I have two basic positions. One is that they are human beings exactly as we are. 
So, in other words, they may look different in their clothes and all the rest of it, their language and their customs, but Homo sapiens is jolly well Homo sapiens, and the Babylonian population at large is something we would recognise as us. So you can therefore extrapolate from that to read what they write as if it's written just by a person, not by somebody who's 3,412 years old. It doesn't really make any difference. So you it's, don't treat them like weirdos, you treat them as fully human, as yeah, us. Not down the wrong end of a microscope, mm. but more sympathetically. And the other thing is, I don't believe in trying to second-guess them. So in other words, if there's a whole body of literature which is predicated on a simple and obvious fact that everybody in ancient Mesopotamia, which is ancient Iraq, okay, the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the Syrians, all that lot, it wasn't for them that they believed in ghosts or they didn't believe in ghosts, which is the modern position. They just took them for granted. They were part of daily life. Nobody actually said, waiting at the bus stop to their neighbour, you know, someone said they saw a ghost yesterday in the garden. I mean, how can they be so naive in the modern world? You know, after all, this is 2300 BC. I mean, there's no way we can still <laughs> believe that kind of nonsense. That conversation never happened because... When people died and they went down there to the netherworld, in the majority of cases, they stayed there and everything was fine. But for lots of reasons, some people came back. And that idea that they were unhappy and restless down there and came back because of their grievances shows the footing on which the whole belief system operated. It was kind of realistic and based on the assumption that ghosts like them were also human beings but a bit underweight. In other words, they weren't alien. They weren't alien. So with all the literature in cuneiform writing that we have about ghosts, by and large, the primary reaction of human beings is sympathetic. And we have the most extraordinary stuff. Look, for example... Yes, say, sorry, you mean sympathy for the ghost. You mean. Well, let, let me put it this way. Say you're making a salad in the kitchen today and um, you're cutting up your vegetables and a mouse runs across the floor of the kitchen over your foot and you jump like anything because it's so startling and then you think, blast it, I'm going to have to get somebody in, blast it, we'll have to move <laughs> all the furniture, blast it. So it's a massive inconvenience, but you don't want to n nuclearly destroy every mouse on the planet. You know, mice have to live, they have to feed their babies, you know, there's a kind of... You know, they're not the worst thing in the world, but this will be... And ghosts are a bit like that. There's a sympathy for them, on the whole, because the belief was if they come back when they should be down there, they have a good reason. So what you're saying then is that in these ancient times, and pretty much almost right up to a few centuries ago, there's no differentiation between the natural world and the supernatural world. Well, I don't think it's a supernatural world. I think it's all the world. Yes, that's what I mean. Yes. It's all the natural world. It, it's all, yes. yes, and that, this is how things are. But, you know, if you say you have a society where everybody takes um, ghosts for granted, that might ring strange in Sydney or in London or in New York, but for, there are many, many parts of the world where people still basically live as they always have done. And in non-urban village communities, which are very conservative, miles from anywhere, beliefs of this kind have never gone away. So I think there are many parts of the world where you could get out of your four-by-four, trying not to look like an anthropologist and find an old lady under a tree. I'm writing a book about ghosts. Tell me something. Do you people believe in ghosts or not? 
That's how anthropologists, of course, <laughs> handle these tricky matters. All the time. Yeah, all the time. And this old lady would say, you're asking me about ghosts? Yes, that's correct, taking out your notebook. Well, how much time do you have? Because in the non-urban world at large, I believe that this conception holds true and it's only us in our very clever, sophisticated Nobel Prize kind of environment overlaid, as I see it, by science on the one hand and religion on the other, that the natural layer of belief in ghosts, which is part of the human picture, in our world is suppressed, ridiculed, trodden down and doubted. So you have this situation that it's a sort of underground thing. And I've met quite a few people who've told me things because I wrote this book knowing that I'm not going to laugh at them. One of the most um, impressive was this. I went to a literary festival and afterwards this lady said, well, um, when I was a girl, I looked out of my bedroom window onto the garden beneath and I saw my grandfather walking across the lawn. And this was quite astonishing because, I mean, she loved her grandmother for grandfather, but he'd been dead for about a fortnight. So she went running downstairs into the kitchen where her mother was leaning against the sink, looking out the window, white-faced. And her mother said, Molly, you're never going to believe this. I've just seen my dad walking across the lawn. Now, that is not science. It's not proof. It's not anything serious like that. But it's testimony of the highest water to me. And in all other walks of life, if you are presented with an, a two-point argument which is so strong in itself and you can't disbelieve it on principle, you're te you tend to be persuaded by it. But when it comes to ghosts, all those rules go out of the window. So this is an interesting and itchy thing for me, and I would be very gratified, to go back to your first question, if I'd seen a real corker of a ghost, A, I'd have got the ghost to sit down, I want him to fill out the form, his name and address, I definitely want a photograph, and one with me, so I can show the buggers. But it's never happened. Oh. What a shame. The, the whole area of your research is in the very first, the very oldest civilizations on Earth, which came up in what is we now call Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates. Exactly. This is the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, these very early societies. Mm. And when we talk about civilizations, we, we, what we normally mean, and I'm assuming this is what you mean, these are the first peoples that develop cities and writing. Is that what it is? Well, the earliest stuff that we have of writing is about 4,000 BC, something like that. That's when we, our writing becomes clear. And we have complex cities living independently one from another in the same territory, sometimes fighting, sometimes not. But the thing is this. Recently in Turkey, there's been excavations at a site called Gebekli Tepe, which is about 9,000 9, BC, something like that, which has the same urban cluster of cities with massive architecture and art and all that other stuff, which is just as good as the Sumerian stuff, only about 6,000 years older. So we can't say for a minute that all that stuff was invented by the Mesopotamians. All we can say is that the Sumerians, as far as we know, were the first people to make marks on a surface, in this case clay, which recorded sound in such a way that another person could read them and get the sound back. That's the sort of principle. And in Mesopotamia, in about 4,000, it began in Mesopotamia. 
but, but I've reached the stage in life where I'm not quite so convinced that all the things I learned as a student were absolutely true because uh, the writing in Mesopotamia appearing about 4,000 when I was a boy at university, we were told when you have such a complex urban environment with all these people dependent on organisation and wages and security and architecture, and everything, you have to have right. have to have Because, writing. my God, how other words do they do it? Yeah, well, how do you get a pay slip? That's right. Yeah, and I'm not even joking. Or, or, or a record of an exchange of goods. All that stuff. But if that was true in Mesopotamia in 4,000 BC, then it was also true in Gebek in about 9,000 BC. But they so, don't have writing. Uh, so far. But who knows? Who knows? The thing is with archaeology, it's very rash to be too dogmatic. But on present state, you know, certainly the first things that we have and that we can eventually read and the minds and the, uh, the theories and ideas that they have we can extract comes from this cuneiform from about 4,000 BC onwards. So having looked at the writing that's emerged in cuneiform from these very, very, very early societies. Do you get a sense, this is maybe a silly question, I don't know, but do you get a sense of some kind of awakening, a human awakening, as people are writing for the first time, where yes. you can record your thoughts and read them back again? So I think language is very, 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 very ancient. And writing, whether it's 4000 BC or earlier, is a later thing. So when we say, can you say there's a dawning if you're dealing with a continuum of communication, there's no specific sudden wake-up thing. But I think what happened with writing is that it was designed for very simple, rarefied tax-type things. As you said before, wage slips, who owes who what, deliveries, all that. And somebody had the idea, heck, we can do more than that with this. We can tell a story, which must have been explosive in somebody's mind. It's not a communal thing. And then once you do that, you have lists of words, of course, because they invent new words, they have to write them down. And then you have literature, you have hymns and stories, and then you have encyclopedias. And then one thing that I think would be a dawning idea in your question is the idea that experience could be transmitted later. Otherwise, it's father to son, don't forget this son, you know, when you're killing a tiger, do it quick, you know, that kind of stuff. Or um, by a king who wants to be remembered yes, uh, as, a, as a great victor. That's right you know? in there, too, yes. at the beginning, I imagine. Yes, yes, look at me, I'm still here, even though I'm dead. Yes. So writing is a late thing, but language is a very ancient thing. So, so with the advent of writing, there's this powerful new form of awareness that comes with it. At the same time... If we're going to talk about the first ghosts, implicit in that idea is the idea of a spirit or a soul. When do we start to see that in human history? Do we get that with burial? Well, the way I looked at it was the following, that in the animal world, the dead are buried. So elephants bury their dead and, and tigers probably eat their dead. But in, in the natural world, when a, a creature is dead, it's covered with things, it's trodden over, it's buried. So the property of burying a deceased member of your species is not a human thing, it's an animal thing. So I think that um, the proto-hominids and pre-hominids and all the rest of them up until Homo sapiens, they buried their dead because they stank because they were dangerous, because they had disease. Everybody got them out of the way as soon as possible. So, so burial itself doesn't necessarily have a spiritual component? I don't think it does. No. I mean, you can argue, I don't think it could it's just, do. It's practical. And it also means it can go all the way back, all the way back, all the way back. 
that when people are laid in a special space, laid out neatly, with bits and pieces to go with them, there, I think, the implication has to be that they believed, A, that part of a person, what you would call a soul or a spirit, survived the death of the rotting body, the bit that made Uncle Henry Uncle Henry, and that it went somewhere into an environment where what you gave them was going to be useful. Otherwise, what's the point? The grave goods. Grave goods, as yes. they call them. Once you have that, there's a destination ahead. One of the very first cities, if not the first city, I'm not quite sure, is the city of Ur oh, in yes. Mesopotamia, which dug up in the 1920s. Mm. Tell me what was found in the royal tombs there alongside the, that, the bones of the old kings. So in this city of Ur, which is the one in the Bible where... Abraham was supposed to be born, or of the Chaldees, people sometimes call it. Well, it's a real place, a real city. And in the third millennium, the kings of Ur, who spoke Sumerian, were very powerful because, A, they had highly developed trade, but they also had military conquest. They had an empire. So they were big shots. And it turned out, for a period of time, maybe a 100 years or more, when a member of the royal family died, it wasn't just them because they're retainers. So ladies-in-waiting, grooms, musicians, carpenters, cooks, all the rest of it, all the people who served that member of the family during their lives were buried with them. Oh, God. Yes. How so, like, like how many people are we talking about ooh, here? I don't know, 20 or 30 in some cases. I think even more. Bit of a rough and deal, isn't it? It's a rough deal for them, mm. I know. But the thing is, they had lavish grave goods because they were royalty, so they had chariots, musical instruments, game boards, gold, silver, you know, all the stuff, the clutter, the sort of car boot sale approach, with all their retainers. And the interesting thing about them is when they were discovered, they weren't all twisted in torment and sitting up writing messages to their last ones and all the rest of their loved ones. <laughs> and they were all laid out peacefully themselves. So this is a bit of a conundrum because some people thought they were drugged or some people thought they just collected people when they were already dead, but I don't think that could work. And some people thought they might have bashed the back of their heads in with a big mace. But in any case, these retainers were found. So when this was excavated in the 1920s, boy, did that get in the newspapers. Yeah, so what was the thinking in, in killing the servants or the servants agreeing? They'd be needed. I mean, they were there so that the, the princess would say, uh, hello, uh, chief or two, and, uh, you know, some cakes or something right, like that. Right, so, so they're, they're going to need servants in the other world. So what you've got here oh. is the hugest possible extrapolation of the simple idea that burying an, a, a dagger and a, some beads with a skeleton was to give them stuff for their journey and what they would need in the future blown up unimaginably into the biggest possible literal interpretation of it and you know the gold and silver they were all uh, speechless when they found it it's an incredible thing so when ghosts are mentioned in these cuneiform tablets that you have these accounts that that refer to ghosts how do they appear to people is it the ghost of someone they recognize a ghost of a family member is the ghost recognized by the person who sees it's them? a very important question so this is this is how i can answer it we know most about that from these omens because, you know, in Mesopotamia, like other places, there was a whole tradition of telling the future what's going to happen from things that you describe as having done or seen. So there's loads of these omens. If a man sees a ghost in his bedroom, it means... <coughs> if a man sees a ghost of somebody he doesn't know in his bedroom, 
list and so forth, and all the varieties are listed, what, what the results might be. Often they're a bit gruesome, but they knew how to get rid of this when necessary. They could pin down the one or, one or few lines which was particularly relevant in their case. And if it was a gruesome thing, like the oldest son would die, for example, then there would be a procedure known only to the people who administered this knowledge in order to avert the danger. So, so you're saying there are like specific accounts of ghosts that are known to us are recognised as nana or granddad or great-grandfather and others, who, and others who are not. Yes, and the thing that people were most frightened of is ghosts speaking to you. If they speak to you, that's very, very ominous and something had to be done. Now, There's some important information to yes. be transmitted from that world the ghost has come from. Well, I mean, they might come out with a string of abuse because, see, if you have a, a, a big extended house built around a central courtyard with different wings and, and sisters and sisters-in-law and, you know, the big grandfather in charge and then eventually the grandfather dies and the oldest son has the responsibility of making daily offerings for the spirit of this grandfather wherever he is. So they know he's under the floor, but at the same time they knew he was in the underworld, and in the underworld things were rather gruesome and they needed food and they needed water. So there was a pipe in the, in the centre of this, this courtyard. Like a drain to the, to the, really the underworld. Thing. I can imagine in the summer it must have been pretty unpleasant. And you had to make these offerings. But if you failed like this, this is one of the chief reasons why ghosts got irritable. But there were also lots of other reasons, and this is one of the um, perspectives on it all, which is so familiar in the modern world, because people believe that someone who fell headfirst down a well and drowned, or was burned in a fire, or was killed in battle, or died in childbirth, or any other unpleasant end, their spectre in the, in the netherworld is very unlikely to settle. They want closure. They want some kind of sympathy. They want some kind of settlement. And they come back and pull people's hair and say, look, um, you've got to do something. That sort of idea that the troubled ghost comes back where they had their trouble, like visiting the scene of the crime in the real world, is a kind of universal matter. It's a universal matter. broadcast and online this is conversations with Richard Feidler hear more conversations anytime on the ABC listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations when these ghosts appear how do they appear? Do they appear as shadowy figures or shimmering light, bits of light? I know. I, I fancy the shimmering, but actually they don't describe it. They sometimes talk about clothes and unfamiliar and non-familiar. So I think they had on... I mean, I, I conceive of it as a sort of dressing gown. I don't know where, why I should do that. I don't think they were wearing um, leathers and a helmet. But um, we, don't, we don't really know. But there's a, another point about this mechanism of the coming back, because... Often people, as I say, were sympathetic and often they knew what to do to pacify things and they redouble their efforts with sacrifices and they make apologies and all that. But the interesting perspective here is this, that, uh, as you know from your elevated work, that the human race consists of a wide spectrum 
of individuals. And you have on the left here weak, ineffectual twerps, and you have people who are abrasive and aggressive, and you have people who are nasty. So um, you can be on one or other end or somewhere in the middle. Right. So there's a spectrum of ghosts. The spe well, right. the same thing applies to ghosts, because the nature of a ghost, in my view, is the same as they were when they were alive. So if you have a ghost who was a real bastard when he was walking about, he will be one... A bastard of a ghost. A bastard of a ghost. And they can make you ill. With them, it's not so funny because they torment you, they follow you. You mean they infect you in some sort of way? Yes, they do. They and how do they do that? They go in through the ear when you're oh. asleep and they can make you mad and they can affect your breathing and your internal organs and then you have to get a specialist who can drive them out with spells and uh, all that sort of thing. You have um, in your book a bit of cuneiform you've translated from a... Oh, lots Mesopotamian. of it. Lots, I, I lots translate of as much as I could get away with, yes. There's a, one description you've got of a ghost in cuneiform. OK, well, this is a four-line spell and it's indicated in the Babylonian language, and under certain circumstances, somebody would come out with it. And this is how it reads in English, of course. You are the offspring of the wind. I have laid you in the grave. I've sent you down. Why did you not fear my solemn oath? So this is an aggrieved person who's, as it were, done their bit, and nevertheless this ghost is here, which meant that... Now you're down there, auntie. We loved you very much, but stay there. It's improper that you're up here. It's improper that right. you're up here. It's yes. improper, yes. And, of course, I'll have to do something about it. The idea of another world, the, the, the idea of the architecture of the world, if you like, is there a heaven and an earth and oh, another yes. world? Yes, there certainly and is. And what's heaven? Well, there are actually seven heavens, according to some theology. The thing is that this knowledge of the different levels of the heavens is a rather esoteric matter among certain learned scribes who consider them to be made of different stones. And who lives in heaven? And different gods lived in the different heavens. Right. So this is, this is a kind of clerical theological approach normal people looked up and saw the blue and um, that was the sky and the heavens were somewhere above that which is where the gods lived and what were the stars to the mesopotamians um, well very very early on they thought they were deities because the picture of a star is made up of signs for deity. So very early, I mean, I think very, very early indeed, long before the time that we can really approach anything. But um, they thought they were laid out on the great vault of heaven and they contained messages because the movements of them and their relationships with them and the fact that they were associated with different gods was full of meaning. Just as people who tried to predict the future from... See a ghost. There were other specialists who observed things in the heavens, watched their movements, watched their associations along the belt and so forth, and how things came together and rose and set, and extracted from that two things. The scientists among them, the astronomers, worked out an astronomical um, understanding of the universe, which is breathtakingly advanced, and actually made the Greeks sit up and make notes. But the other thing was the idea that that's where the gods were and things that happened there mirrored what happened on the Earth. But it's not, it's not a realm for the dead humans, then? No, the dead humans are right under your feet. So the netherworld is below... So you have a disk, which is us, 
So the heavens are like a vault above a dead Basic, sea. And then a and, vault and, underneath. Uh, right, and a vault underneath, and that's the netherworld. And, so. and how is the netherworld described? Is it dark? Well, yes, it, it's dark and gloomy, and um, there... It's actually very unsatisfactory because um, the dead all stand around, as I see them, rather like penguins. They sort of shuffle about in the dust and they wait and they wait and they can't see very much and um, they're very miserable. And, of course, every week there are thousands more of them, so it must be a bit like Hoban tube station in the underground. You know, that's a lot, the like the, it's a lot like the Greek concept of the underworld, like and it's also a bit like the Norse concept of the underworld Well, as I well. think it stands to reason that they all have this idea, in a way, that it's down there, because I think that the down there comes simply from the fact that people are buried. I mean, it, you know, it makes sense. You don't bury people up there. Yeah, but so. that's, yeah, that whole idea of being buried and laid to rest is one thing, but just standing there... In the dark. Well, there's a kind it's of, really horrible. Yes, it's frightening. There's a kind of downtown in, in the netherworld and there are buildings and um, gates. Well, it's a city down there, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And also, in some texts, there are places where people from Elam live and um, also the demons and devils are down there sometimes and so you have to be careful where you go. And, and, and is the population of the netherworld always growing as more and more people die? Or are they, or are they, some of them being reincarnated back on the disk of the earth again? Well, here we get into a very um, esoteric matter. But as far as I can see, the literature that we have shows that the people down there are locked in by a series of gates. They're down there. And to all intents and purposes, they are waiting. But what it doesn't tell you in the literature on the whole, is what they are waiting for. Now, this seems to me a deeply unsatisfactory conception of the world to come, because if it was really like that, that you hung around in the gloom, in the dust, waiting, waiting and waiting, and you didn't know why, they'd all come back. I mean, I can't understand why anybody would stay there. So I think there's a different thing behind it. My idea is this, and it comes from some rather sophisticated religious texts, that they had a working idea in Mesopotamia that the resource of life was finite and that for a new baby to be born, somebody had to die. There was a sort of balance. And, as it were, a limited number of what you want to call them, souls, something like this. And so the souls which were down there in the netherworld one would be let out of the gate and go upwards and turn into one of those bawling, puking, puling little bottles of joy that all <laughs> young parents wish to have for themselves. So, But I think it's not reincarnation in the sense of um, you improve each time and get closer to enlightenment or you get punished or anything like that or that you can remember anything or that you carry anything from before. I think it's just, as it were, the chemical material is regarded as limited and it's recycled into another human being because they because they thought people that what we call flesh and blood was made out of clay and blood and then this essence went in there and the essence was precious and then the essence was reused so it's a funny thought of reincarnation recycling is a better word but it gives you the idea of plastic rubbish which is so good so there's only so much spirit to be had I in the world think there is, yes. and in modern ghost Stories, not, I'm not talking about fiction, but ghost reports, if you like. Yes. They, they are often described as being confused, foggy, distressed, not sure where they are. They're not capable. You don't hear of conversations with ghosts. You hear someone shouting like, you know, get out or something like that. Yeah. Is there a sense in these 
the first ghosts, these Mesopotamian ghosts, that they're like that, that they're confused or almost zombie-like? Well, I think zombie gives a very, very wrong impression. I think... Well, befuddled, if you like, then, yes. Well, I, I, I think so. Well, look, let, let, let's see. If you have a ghost who comes back to the house where they used to live with their descendants there, they're not going to be befuddled. They know why they're there, and they've got a point to make, and that's that. If you have soldiers who are killed on a battlefield, Babylonians in another country, and their ghosts would never know where they are, they'd be very confused and very fuddled and uh, befuddled. And uh, So it's, it's partly a practical thing. So that's what I said when I when I said, I try not to second-guess these narratives, because they're not written for us, they're written in their real lives. With all the assumptions that they With have the that we might not have. Yeah, yes. so it's an elusive mm. matter to be sure that you're not deluding yourself, but I think that that's how it worked. And, and I think the Hollywood, either the clanking chains or the woo-woo noise or the um, befuddle thing is only partly helpful. I mean, I think, the, you know, the omens that we were talking about, which predict what happens if you see a ghost under all these different circumstances, are often rather bad, but they had the method that to extrapolate from the activity how to dispel the evil so it wasn't like a ghost came back and said you're going to this this and that they didn't have all that kind of stuff and a ghost wasn't necessarily bad news in that way you make a distinction between in these ancient mesopotamian societies between ghosts that might cause a bit of trouble and malevolent demons what's the difference between a demon and a ghost well this is if you're a practitioner very important indeed because ghosts are dead persons, dead human beings. And demons are nothing to do with human beings. They have a whole different makeup and they are very, very much more dangerous. They are they are they have no heart, they have no mercy, they are really um, inimical and trouble-looking and freebooting and horrible. Everyone was very nervous about demons and did all they could to get rid of them. And th th they were often linked together because, I mean, ghosts and demons are often linked together in many cultures. And the ancient Babylonian exorcists, who had control of all the spells and all the rituals and knew what to do, didn't only do ghosts, they also did evil spirits and demons and devils as well. It was their whole meat and drink. But they had spe case-specific things for getting rid of ghosts and case-specific things for getting rid of demons, and more or less they were separate. That's a much more serious threat, then. I think uh, a more serious threat, yes. And, and calls for a full-on exorcist. And this brings us, of course, to... We did talk about this last time, but it is kind of worth bringing up again. The movie, The Exorcist, uh -huh, where yes. the, the demon at the heart of that that possesses poor Regan in the townhouse in Washington, D.C., that makes her head rotate and puke up green bile and everything else. The demon is named in that movie as Pazuzu, and, oh, and it's yes. from an archaeological site. Yes, well, that makes me um, puke in green. Why is that? Why? Because, look, this is a very important <laughs> matter. Um, Pazuzu is, is a demon, but he's a good demon. Right. Pazuzu is actually demon. named in these cuneiform as a, as, a, yes. as, a, as, a, as, a, as a good demon? Yes. Yes, he's recruited against the most evil kind of demon. His father was the king of the winds, Pazuzu, and he was rather ugly, it has to be admitted, a rather distorted sort of bloated face, and he had wings and things like that. But he was on our side because the real danger, the most extreme danger, was this Lamashtu, who, who was a she-demon with a lion claws and she preyed on new babies and women in travail and it was very very bad news she indeed. was the demon who took uh, newborn right. infants yes. right yes and the thing about pazuzu was 
for some reason we don't quite know, Pazuzu was anathema to Lamashtu. So if she's going down the street, which of course what she did, trying to, it says in the text, sniffing for new blood and... New babies. New babies, yeah, and sees through the... Oof. Slips in through the crack in the doorway and... <laughs> clenches and clenches like that. If there's a picture of Pazuzu, say, hanging on the wall, or the mother has one round her neck, <laughs> she recoils in horror and leaves. And they have some some relationship between them. The very image of Pazuzu is enough to drive Lamashtu away. So from a good, God-fearing, normal Mesopotamian householder, <laughs> Pazuzu is one of us. And we're jolly glad about it. And it is absolute scandal that in the hands of Hollywood, he was claimed to be the evil force. I mean, I've often felt legal proceedings should be brought out of that. Shame, Hollywood, shame. All right, not for the first time. So so these images, these fearsome images of Pazuzu, which we see where, where Pazuzu's are like a lion-like yes, figure. Grimacing but that's just a scarecrow, then. Yes, more like a... Exactly, that's a good way of looking at it. You have a clay tablet here in the British Museum, which is a, a proclamation from a particularly unpleasant Assyrian king named Ashurbanipal, where he boasts of his victory against the Elamites. And in this, in this victory, it's not just a destruction of their lives, it's the destruction of their whole oh, yes. otherworldly lives. Tell me about what's in this proclamation and, and what he says he's done to his vanquished enemies, the well, Elamites. This, this, the Assyrians were, were warmongers par excellence for political reasons, and when they, they had a long trouble with these Elamites. And after the battle was completely won, and they rampaged through the palace in bloodlust and violence. They found the sepulchre where the bones of the reigning Elamite king, whom they probably already just killed, um, were laid out um, in their pace of rest, and had been forever, and they broke that open and scattered the bones to the four winds as a kind of way to annoy the royal house of Elam. And, and it shows that that netherworld existence was not just a figure of speech but it was something very realistic and this is the way Assyrian kings behaved and what they thought and what they wanted us to know about them. I destroyed and demolished the tombs of their kings earlier and later who did not revere Ashur and Ishtar my lords and had disturbed the kings my ancestors and I exposed them to the sun. I took their bones to Assyria and prevented their ghosts from sleeping and deprived them of funerary offerings and water pouring. Now, those things, like we were saying before, with the son and the grandfather, worst thing you can do, let them down on the food and drink, the ghosts get annoyed. So you don't just kill the living. You kill the dead, too, in a way. You could say you kill the dead, yeah. And this is the king who had all the power in the world. People have been telling ghost stories we now know, since the dawn of language, I suppose. What do you think this says about human beings, the human condition, what it means to be human in a broader sense? Well, in the broader sense, I think um, this thing about um, ghosts, which I myself attribute to being a very deep-seated thing in Homo sapiens, in a very internal, deep-seated way, ultimately reflects arrogance. Because I think it's the lot of human beings to die, and even from a very early age, everybody knew they were going to die, and nobody wanted to, and nobody could quite believe 
that there wasn't going to be anything after I'm dead is a very hard thing to digest. And I think it's to do without the reluctance to believe that a whole person is forever extinguished by death is an affront. So I think that that hunger or that inadequacy set the scene for the conception that some invisible ethereal part of a person did survive. And, of course, all religions refer to this as a matter of daily life. All, all aspects of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all take it for... And all the other religions take it for granted that this quota which makes up the human person for good or evil survives the death of the body and goes somewhere. I mean, your cleric will say it goes up there to be up there, but that's all the same thing. It, it, it is a conviction that, that there is more that lies ahead. And, of course, in other religions, all this gets perverted, like punishment and uh, eternal punishment and burning in hell and all that. The Babylonians had nothing of that, I'm proud to say. Nothing of that. There's no judgment. In no judgment and no punishment for what you did when you were alive. If you didn't get punished then, it was fine. I approve of this idea. Do you think we have souls? Do you think you have a soul? Do you think it will survive your death 70, 80, 100 years from now? Irving? Let me think that through. I'll be 153. <laughs> um, could we have a meeting a bit nearer the time? Um, we can take it up. I'll book this booth if possible. I don't know. Um, you know, sometimes one has the feeling um, of tremendous closeness to human beings as a whole that... But it's a very transitory thing, and all the things that human beings do, especially as reported on the radio, are, are calculated to provoke exactly the opposite feeling. So I, I tend to operate in this way, that ideas and thoughts and so forth and all other aspects of a human being are, in a sense, superficial or just so much frippery and that religious belief and customs and all that, it's all outer thing. And that what is really important is the crucial inside business. And the inside business is the one thing that makes everybody in the planet capable of being bound together. But, of course, it hardly ever happens, and sometimes it's almost impossible to believe it ever will. But ultimately, I think I had this optimism that the survival of the human race and, of course, the globe, will be consequent on the greater increase in the understanding that that is true, that our species is one species, and that we jolly well ought to stick together. You know how people in the Second War, who never spoke to one another at all, once the Nazis started bombing Germany, talked at the bus stop freely to people they never met before, and it was a great leveller of society, and people talked freely, like they might do on a radio with a good interviewer, but never at any other time. You know, if we had an invasion from another planet, everybody would be fantastic together. So, I mean, it's, it's very complicated. Neil Gaiman, the author of American Gods and a whole lot of other books, and the Sandman series of graphic novels. In the Sandman series, he had the main character, who's Morpheus. He's the Lord of Dreams, if you like. But, and he visits gods of all these other theologies going back in history. And one of the characters is a cat god, an Egyptian cat goddess called Bast. Bast. And Bast, of course, used to have millions of followers, but now she has almost none. And so in the Sandman story, he visits Bast and she's living in a kind of 
ruined palace. It's falling around her. There's no almost nothing there. Nothing. No servants, no nothing. <laughs> She's barely alive. I wonder if, if because she has no one to believe in her, yes. I, I wonder if you think that Babylonian ghosts can still linger, if there are no Babylonians to see them. Well, I tell you what, I think if ghosts exist and if people can see them, then I don't think there's any statute of limitations on how long they might they might survive. So, I mean, you'd expect most Babylonian ghosts to be in Iraq, but I wouldn't be at all surprised among the ghosts in the British Museum, which I've never seen, but which are apparently are here, there's probably one Babylonian one. I mean, there jolly well should be. It reminds me again how annoying it is. I can't do anything about it, it seems. And uh, as, as the, the, the idea of looking at the human race as one species, um, the ghost belief is a central tool for this purpose, a central tool, because what unites narratives of all periods, um, as far as I, I, mean, I haven't read everything and everything and everything, but uh, the impression one has is that there is a kind of universal understanding of the basic plot shared by people over a very wide range, as you said at the beginning of geography and time, which I think is to be celebrated. I think it's it, it's um, in itself it's marvellous, and I uh, it doesn't really worry me whether, so to speak, it exists they exist or not. It, I, I think it's irrelevant. It's, it's, it's actually the power of this story. You know, there's one other incidental point that struck me writing the end of this book, that the Babylonian belief that a dead person has to die before a baby can be born when you've got limited material, and that causal balance between them is an idea, in my opinion, of immense beauty and also one which would be of invaluable benefit to any cleric who works in a cancer ward where people are hanging on in great pain to what remains of their body and they need to counsel them and talk to them and make them feel better. And I think if I was in that position and somebody said to me, well, if you actually do die, when you do die, somebody somewhere in the world will have a new baby as a result, that is like a balm for all manner of fears. It's a very beautiful idea to me. It certainly is. Irving Finkel, how lovely it has been to speak with you once again here in the bowels of the British Museum. Can we turn the lights back on now? Is yeah, that all right? and let's do it again soon. <laughs> Thank you so much, Irving. Bye-bye. Broadcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Finkel's book is called The First Ghosts. Huge thanks to the British Museum and to Dr Jamie Fraser for making all this happen. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.